a Bible and it would be a help to you, would you take it as a gift from us? We'd love for you to have it. It would be our pleasure. So we'd love for you to have that Bible. But you can join us in the Old Testament. You can look. There's a table of contents, 1 Samuel, or someone can help you. But 1 Samuel chapter 20 and then Hebrews chapter 6 are the two places we're going to be. We've been in 1 Samuel, but we haven't been there since February 11th, and we're back. And one of the things that I want to I invite you to is our, our new bulletin that we have on the inside of the bulletin. Each week, we're going to try to publish for you uh, an opportunity for seeing what the message or the texts are for Wednesday night in our teaching, and uh, or in this case, it's Thursday night, not Wednesday, but normally it would be Wednesday, and on Sunday. So many of you, you pray and read the passage throughout the week beforehand, and that will help you prepare your heart and pray for me and pray for you and pray for this church and for whoever's visiting. And so I, I commend you. I think you'll get more out of the sermon as you read it ahead of time. And so you can see we'll be in John 13 on Thursday and Luke 15 on Easter Sunday. How do you spell security? going to ask you to say it out loud, but the biblical answer is simple. C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. That's what 1 Samuel chapter 20 is actually about, covenants. That's how you spell security. Covenants and the security that it brings. So the chapter depicts David and Jonathan's friendship. It actually isn't primarily meant to dredge up some beautiful sentimentality over friendship. It is to go much deeper and speak to the God that founds these friendships and speak to greater realities for us. And I want to speak of that this morning. We enter into covenants. We often don't talk of about it that way. In reality, if you are a member of this church, and we want to communicate that more clearly, to be a member of that church is we're covenanting together. That means we share a covenant. We make promises. Here's the one definition of covenant from Chris Bruno in his book, The Six Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. He says, it's a relational promise marked by faithful love. That's what a covenant is. It's a relational promise. There's warmth and personal relationship. And it's a promise. There's a commitment. And it's accompanied with loyal, faithful love. July 7th, 2001. Did I get that right, Molly? I think it was July 7th. Um, we got married. It'll be 17 years. 17 years this July. I know that I don't look that old. We made a covenant with one another. We made a, it is a relational promise. And in it, we made vows where we said things like, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And may God do, do bring this death to us, bring destruction. If I break those vows, I, I care about this and I am making this before God for better or for worse. And we made a covenant vow together. 
that's a picture of covenant. We don't talk about covenant all the time, but the Bible is filled with covenant, God making covenant to people in the Old and then into the New Testament, God making covenant to you. And I think that our understanding of God and His love to you and me will not come to its fullness unless we better understand covenant. Without the, with the word covenant, we have to, in the Bible sense of the word, can't think about covenant in terms of a homeowner's association, kind of a covenant assigning. Oh yeah, we agree to do this, and I'm not going to park my car here. We can't think of it as dues for even a labor union kind of covenant or relationship that you have there. It's much something much deeper like marriage. It's meant to be somewhat like church, but much deeper. And when you get that, you have to come up with a word called loyal. Loyalty. What comes to mind, or rather, who comes to your mind when you think of loyalty? Loyalty. Surely we can't think of sports teams. They're not loyal to their players, their stars. It doesn't matter if they're too old. We ditch them for for a better player because of the money. The players won't be loyal to their teams, understandably so, in the same way. And they're going to move to whoever will pay them the most, but loyal. It's a giving or a showing firm and constant support or allegiance to a person or an institution. Some synonyms to loyal mean faithful and true, devoted and constant and steadfast and dependable and reliable and trusted, dedicated, unchanging, unwavering. And what I want us to hear this morning, because it's in God's Word, What I want us to see every time we take communion, every time we gather, is God's covenant love to His people is that it's unwavering. It's loyal. It's beautiful. It it means so many other things. It it makes Romans 8, 28, He works all things together for good. He will never leave you or forsake you. All of these promises are good because God made a promise, a relational promise, and He guaranteed it with this kind of faithful, loyal love. There's a word in the Old Testament. You don't have to know Hebrew to to understand and grow in God, but there is an Old Testament word. It's worth us hearing this word. It's hesed, H-E-S-E. A-D, or H-E-S-E-D, said love, is a word that when we sit, read the Psalms, it says, your mercy endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your kindness endures forever. Your loving kindness endures to all generations. When we sit in some of the passage that Russ read and I read, we sang about God's said love, His faithful love, because it's bound in a covenant. So I want to tell you the story in 1 Samuel chapter 20. It is 42 verses, and that probably and that's a long chapter in 1 Samuel. And I tell you something that as you come to this place, you go, man, Samuel took a long time, or whoever wrote 1 Samuel took a long time to write this one chapter, and it's a, a unique, almost sometimes hard to follow. So we're not going to read it from verse 1 to 42. I'm going to just read some verses, and I want to tell you the story, and I want to bring you, bring you to this, and I encourage you to meditate on it. You have an outline, and you can fill in the notes here. So here's the story. David is not yet king, but God promised him to be the king. Who's the king? It's Saul. Saul started out really good, but turned really bad quickly. 
Saul is so jealous and full of envy. Saul has already tried to kill David. He's thrown a spear at him. He sent people to his home, and David had to escape through the help of his wife. He, and the last thing we heard about him is David had run over to Samuel and hung out with Samuel and prophets, and Saul sent messengers to go kill him. And then Saul went to go get him and kill him himself, and God said, Nope, spirit, I'm going to deliver David. And the spirit of God came upon the bad king Saul and and actually made Saul prophesy and kind of go crazy and take off his clothes. And God said, I protect my man. I'm in covenant with. There you go. Now we're to this story. And here we find that David fled from Naoth the Ramah and came before his friend Jonathan. Who's Jonathan? You've got to get these relationships right. Jonathan is the son of Saul. That means he should be the heir apparent, right? He's the crown prince. But this is a mix-up because God said David's going to be the king, not the crown prince, Jonathan. But in chapter 18, God, in his grace, brought Jonathan to David together, and they became friends. Jonathan didn't care about his kingdom. He cared about God's kingdom. And Jonathan loved David, and Jonathan and David had made a friendship and a covenant. They sealed it in a covenant. They made a promises to each other, and they said, Yahweh, you hear this? We're making a promise to each other. I will be devoted to David. David will be devoted to Jonathan. We will protect each other. We will love each other. We have so devotion to each other. And God, will you do to us and more what we, if we betray one another? So chapter 20 comes. David knows he's in trouble. He knows that this king who has power wants him dead. So David comes to Jonathan and he said, what is my guilt? What did I do to your dad that he hates me? And what is my sin before your father, verse 1, and what that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, far from it. You shall not die, for my father does not either does nothing, either great or small, without telling me first. And he's never told me that he's going to do this. I think it's all calm. It's safe. David goes, no, I don't think so. I think you're blind, Jonathan. But David vowed and said, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, Jonathan, so I'm sure that he's keeping it from you, because why would he tell you? He knows that you're going to be you're going to care for me. But truly, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, there is but one step between me and death. David is in a bad situation. He has the king after him. He's afraid for his life. It is bad. Most of us can't sit here today and say, I know there's there's a hit out on me. Maybe you have, but I don't think most of you have. There was a hit out on David. He's scared. He had to leave his wife. We find here that David says that he's going to hide in the field. Jonathan's going to go to the New Moon Festival, the meal where the king expects all his officers to be there, including David. And and see if Saul notices David's missing and if he's angry or if he's okay with David and test the waters and see how it's going. So we find before he does that, David and Jonathan have an exchange and they do something really beautiful. Only one time does the word covenant come in this passage. But in verse 8, he does. If, it says, if, verse 7, if Saul says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm will be determined by him. They're saying, 
tests the waters if he says, good, he's fine, I like David. I, I'm over my anger towards him. Or if you could tell he's going to kill me. And then David says, would you deal kindly with your servant? Will you deal with Hesed, with faithful, loyal love? For you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far from me, I won't bring you into danger. You can trust me because I made a promise with you and I'm not going to bring you to my father if I know he's going to kill you. In fact, if I betray you, may God strike me dead and may it be worse on me and my whole household. I've made a covenant. I'm going to keep it. My loyal love to you, David. And then in the midst of that story, Jonathan looks at David and says, David, you're going to be king. And someday will you show your love to my house? If I'm alive to me and if it's not me, my house, my family, my children and everyone else, would you, if I'm still alive, will you show your chesed, your steadfast love to me if I die and, and do not cut off your love towards me and my house forever? Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant, the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him and he loved him as he loved his own soul. So they make the plan for how Jonathan's going to go alert. David says, how are you going to, we don't have cell phones, how are you going to let me know? And so David says, why don't you wait in the field? I mean, Saul, Jonathan says, wait in the field. David's going to wait by this pile of rocks. And on the third day, when they find what's going on, Jonathan's going to find out if his dad's going to kill him, or if his dad's calmed down, and he's, it's a safe, the coast is clear. And so when he came out, Jonathan says, I'm going to go with my, my armor bearer, the boy that goes and gets my arrows after I shoot him. I'm going to take my bow and arrow, and I'm going to shoot three arrows. And if I shoot him by the pile of rocks where you are, not at you, but near you, then it's safe. You can come out. Coast is clear. But if I shoot him straight way, way beyond you, then you know that my father wants to kill you, and you need to flee. But I will protect you, and we, we, we will, and I will be faithful to you, and I will not betray you. So Jonathan is, finds out the truth, and what we find is a scene towards the end of this chapter where Jonathan is with Dad. Dad's sitting there. Where's Jonathan? Oh, where's where's David? Jonathan? Oh, David's gone. He he went to Bethlehem to to sacrifice with his his brothers. And Saul looks at him and, why are you defending him? Why do you care? You, who do you think you are? And why are you doing this? This is stupid. You're supposed to be the king next. Don't you know that you'll never be the king as long as David's alive? You and your kingdom, that matters. And why do you care? Why are you throwing it away? You stupid. And he grabs, he says, you're a, he grabs his spear. And as Jonathan runs out, he throws the spear and tries to kill his own son out of vanity. Jonathan got the message he needed. It wasn't the message he wanted. It. He said, David, it's not safe. Takes the arrows, shoots them over the pile of rocks. Jonathan sends the boy, says, go, hurry, go get those arrows. And then he gets the arrows. Hey, little boy, take those back to the camp. Take, take them to town. He comes out to the pile of rocks, and he needs to say goodbye, maybe for the last time to his friend that he loved. 
Verse 41, it says, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground. And he bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another and David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord. It's a covenant of the Lord. He made this promise, a relational promise, saying, the Lord shall between, be between me and you and between our offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot about keeping your promises and being faithful and loving each other and deep devotion and friendship. It's beautiful. But I want you to see what I think God intended for even Israelites to see when they read centuries later this account. God had Samuel spend 42 verses, which meant something in length he wanted to get a point across. And I believe he wanted them to see the covenant of God matters. The covenant of God is what you appeal to. The covenant of God spells security. I want you to see four things about covenant. I want you to see four things that covenant provides, four things that covenant proves and shows about covenant. When you think covenant and God's covenant, I want you to think that God's covenant promises loyal love. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and most of us are, the salvation that we enjoy is because of God's covenant. God made with us and is established and is fulfilling that covenant through Jesus Christ. Both his work on the cross, Jesus looked, lifted up a cup at the Last Supper and said, this is my covenant in my blood, which I make with you. Here are four things about covenant. Covenant love. Covenant love that promises Covenant love that is loyal love. Here's the first thing. Covenant love provides refuge love. It provides refuge love. It's a love that provides a safe place to run when in trouble. And you and I, if you haven't been there yet, and I guess you probably have been there, have been in trouble. Emotionally, physically, whatever it is, even young people, teens, God's covenant love is refuge love. It's a love that you can run to for refuge. David's in trouble. He's got a hit out on him. He knows it. Jonathan hasn't come to grips with it, but he finds out. So where does he turn? He turns to the one he's in covenant with. In fact, I love what Davis says in his commentary. He says, in confusion and in trouble, you take yourself to the person who has made a covenant with you. And I want to apply that directly to us and God. When you're in trouble, whether that trouble be cancer or kids, sometimes it feels like both. They're off kids that are. Whether it be financial trial, whether it be health, whether it be just stress and 10,000 pressures that just hit you at once. When in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the person who you have made covenant with and who has made covenant with you. That's what David does. Jonathan, we're in covenant and we made a covenant with Yahweh. God was our witness. This is how the saints of old in the Old Testament always appealed. 
Things got bad for Nehemiah. They were in exile, and he bows to the God, and he confesses, and he says he appeals to covenant. God, you made a relational covenant, a promise, and your faithful love was attached to that promise. Now help, and he would explain that promise. And we find that in Nehemiah 1, where the Psalms are filled with that. Whenever you see his steadfast love in the ESV, and some in the NIV it's usually his mercy endures forever. It's his his kindness that is associated with his covenant that he is faithful and loyal and dependable. So the psalmist says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Or the psalmist says, wondrous we show your love, your steadfast, your chesed, your covenant love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. The psalm, the the passage that Russ read is about God, and it's about God declaring himself, and it says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, abounding in steadfast, unfailing, loyal love. That's where David runs. That's where God's people run. That's where we go. That's where we go, guilty sinner who repents and turns to God. We run to the steadfast love in Jesus. Because you see, you will never perish when you fall in the abyss of God's loving kindness. We sang this morning His oath. That's God's oath. And Jesus' oath. And covenant, His blood. And they support me in the whelming flood of sin. I'm overwhelmed with the flood of care. His oath and covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood when all my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. You may have a great boss, but he's no refuge. You may have a great place to work, but it's no refuge. You may have a great marriage, but your spouse is not meant to be your refuge. Your spouse's hero must be Jesus. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you're not sure, you're, you're not sure if you're a Christian, do you have a refuge to rescue in trouble? Someone who can take all your worries and cares and troubles and you lift it up to Him. It doesn't mean they're immediately taken care of, but you know that He cares and He's there. If you're a single person here, you may think that a spouse will be that refuge and it will bring that rock that you need, but it will not. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not for everyone and it's not the. It's not what Jesus is in the refuge. We're a church, and we're called to be rocks for each other. We're to be family, but we are, in a sense, we're to be refuges for each other. Someone's sick, someone's car broke down, somebody else has an issue. We help each other, but we point each other and say, our refuge is in our covenant with God. We love because He first loved us. We love Him, and then we love each other. Teenager or young people, you want security and help and peace in the storm. You won't find it fully in friends. They're great, but they're, they're not a refuge. You won't find it in sex or food or social media or gaming or sports. You need something that lasts, something that's real, solid and lasting. Thank God, the covenant in Jesus Christ that we run to. Secondly, not only is God's covenant love a refuge type of love, we run to it for refuge. Covenant love is demonstrated the covenant love demonstrates uncommon love. 
this is a strange thing if you really think about it. Maybe you've heard this story, and so you don't think about this, but you should. I know that there are many of you that have never heard this story. This covenant faithful love is uncommon love. And in fact, any love that God shows us in the covenant is uncommon love. And we better start getting used to this uncommonness and be amazed by it. It's a love that overcomes what is common and comes through for you. This covenant is so unusual. One simply doesn't do what Jonathan does. You didn't hand your place to your rival and promise to protect him in monarchs and kingships. Especially when your place was to be the crown prince. If Jonathan was normal, he would dispose of David, not save David and warn David. In fact, that's what angers Saul, his father, so much about. Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face with all political sense. It's uncommon. Jonathan really didn't seek first his own kingdom. He sought God's kingdom. His dad wanted to say, Jonathan, but you and your kingdom. And Jonathan said, no, it's not about me and my kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. Normal or common would let David perish, but he doesn't. It didn't make sense for Jonathan. It wasn't common. And it didn't make sense for David on the side to go, oh yeah, when I become a king, I'm going to protect your family, because they didn't do that in monarchs. They would, in fact, they would cleanse the families. They would get rid of them, remove them, because they might be a threat. If you read ancient history, you read about that. Not with covenant. The covenant between God and us is an uncommon covenant. God did not look and say, wow, what a beautiful people. I think I'll take that bride to myself. How beautiful those people are, how wise and holy, how just so witty and so wise and so virtuous and holy are Israel. And then in the New Testament, the people I'm going to save. I'm looking for all these great people. No, that's not the story of the gospel. It's very uncommon. It's for while we were still weak, the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's not how you look for your spouse. You don't go look for a real bad person and say, I'm going to marry you so I can reform you and make you beautiful. That's not what we usually do. God did that for us. For one, we'll scarcely die for a righteous person. We might die for somebody that's good, but would we want to die for our enemies? Would we want to die for the person that is going to kill our family? Therefore, we have been justified by his blood. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. It's uncommon. It doesn't make sense, but that's God's love. That's God's steadfast, has said, covenant love to you if you're in his covenant. Oh, non-Christian, if you're here, we want you to receive that love in the gospel of Jesus and enter into that covenant. And you can this morning. You can come by repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus who makes this covenant offered to you through the gospel preached. You just repent of your sins and you believe in him. He takes us in and he enters and we, he enters this covenant love and he will never leave us or forsake us. And he starts to clean us up from the inside out and we we learn a new way and we have a new people and a new language. No God forever. It's an uncommon love. 
that in the song, Come Ye Sinners, Come and Poor and Needy, he's saying, don't let your conscience let you linger from coming to God, nor that this dream of, I have to be fixed before God will accept me into his covenant. You see, all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. The song says, Lord, the rock of ages, nothing in my hand I bring. I don't come offering a bunch of things to God so he'll enter a covenant with me. Simply to the cross I cling. You had to do it for me on the cross, God. I accept your payment for me. It's got to be a gift. I can't earn it. If you're here, as many of you are as believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, would you hold fast and would you meditate on the reality of the uncommonness of God's love for you? It's so glorious. It's so mysterious. It's so unhuman. It's not what you and I would do. We couldn't bring this. And why? Why did God love you and set his eyes upon you? And why did he set his covenant upon us and offer it to us? Why would God love us? I know why I loved Molly. I, I thought she was really pretty. And I thought she was godly. And I loved her personality. And I learned that she could cook really good really quickly. I learned that. I learned a lot of these things. But there were a lot of virtues that I saw in her. And I went, yes, that's what I want. God didn't do that with us. I love what the old dead Puritan Thomas Manton wrote in answering the question, why does God love us? Have you asked why he made so much ado about us worthless creature, raised out of the doubt dust of the ground at first, and had now disordered himself and could not be of any use to him? We have an answer at hand because he loved us. And if you continue to ask, but why did he love us? We have no answer, but because he loved us. For beyond the first rise of things, we cannot guess. Answer, why did he love you? Because he loved us. It's an uncommon love. Thirdly, I want you to see, covenant love is costly love. It's a love that absorbs the cost of fulfilling the promises made. God makes a covenant with us and he says, I'm going to fulfill it and it's going to cost me. Jonathan had a costly love in this story. Jonathan goes before his father. He's finding out the truth and he finds it out. But in this story, it says the anger of Saul was kindled against David, Jonathan. He said, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. In, in actual English, it's you son of something. It just wasn't good. We don't use this language here. He said, you idiot. For as long as the son of Jesse lives in the earth, on the earth, neither will your, your kingdom be established. Therefore, send him here to me and we'll put him to death. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should we be put him to death? What has he done? Tries to, he protects him at cost, and Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. You see, Jonathan's oath is costly to Jonathan. In fact, he goes to Sneel, and his dad runs him out and tries to kill him. Think about it. Dad tried to kill me. father 
so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That giving of his son wasn't, sure, you can have him on loan for a little bit and he can be a servant, but he's your king. He's going to bear the wrath of God and he's going to take upon our sins and he's going to be bruised and humiliated and killed on a cross. That's worth its cost to the Father. It cost his son. You could go all over in the New Testament. He bore our iniquities and the shame was that should have been upon us was upon him. Peter says he Christ suffered for sin once for all, the, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. Costly love. It's a covenant cost. Do you have a covenant to lean on if you're a believer? It was not free, but it's free for you to enter into, but it was not free for it to make because God decided that you couldn't keep the terms of the covenant by yourself. He had to make meet the two terms on both sides and he meets it in Jesus Christ. David and Jonathan experience costly love in this covenant. So do we and you are to rejoice. Finally, God's covenant love not only is a refuge love, not only is it uncommon love, not only is it costly love, it is a peace-giving love. It's a love that brings peace because of the protected relationship. It might seem strange to you if you read the ending of this. It says, and Jonathan said, go in peace. Go in peace? Your dad wants to kill me. How do I go in peace? I'm supposed to be a, a fugitive? The reason why is because God is with you and God is with me and we have a covenant. And yes, we have problems everywhere, but we have peace in our relationship and it's in God. I like what the commentary writes. He says, this, isn't this an accurate sense of biblical peace? You guys are sitting here and you know if you've been a Christian that you, you still struggle with lack of peace or lack of tranquility or, or things aren't always going great. Biblical peace is not often a general Oh, tranquility, we're just walking around meditating, but rather a righteous, a rightness at the center in the midst of turmoil. Paul implied that Christians enjoy peace with God. Even though they'll endure affliction and trial. Jesus told his disciples, in me you may have peace, but the world will afflict you, but you'll have peace that matters. The Christian that does not have peace because Things are peaceful. He has, he, that's not why Christians have peace because things are peaceful, but he has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged to friendship with him. Oh, believer, if you are here, you have peace with God because, not because the world is going to love you, not because everything's going to go great for you, it's because the one that matters has pledged peace to you and will be with you. If you're here, unbeliever, come and receive. You can this is the only source of peace. This is the only source of hope. This is the only source of freedom. It's in the peace that's brought in God and his covenant through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude with this passage. We're going to sing this passage in conclusion. Hebrews 6, 16 through 20. 
Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is making an argument. He wants us to be a certain. We're going to sing about our certainty. We're a firm foundation. We, he will hold me fast. Why is he going to hold me fast? Because of his covenant. And why do we have a certain steady anchor? Because he is our covenant. And what's that imagery about anchorship? An anchor was something you, were, you wanted your boat secured to in the midst of a storm so that your boat just didn't go off wandering, get rolled around and destroyed or taken off the sea. And so we, as God's people, have a sure and steady anchor. We are secured, and that anchor is in heaven, and it's not going anywhere. And it's not we that tied ourselves or held on to it, but God connected us to the anchor, and it's Jesus that made that all happen. So in Hebrews 6, 17, and God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to God for God to lie. Listen to this. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope. That hope is a person that enters into the inner place of the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And Jesus is going to say, God made a covenant with you. I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm not going to leave you. Christ is your sure and steady anchor in the fury of storm when the winds of doubt blow through you and the sails have all been torn in your suffering and in sorrow when in sinking hopes are few. I will hold fast to the anchor and so will you. It will never be removed. Christ is your sure and steady anchor when the tempest rage on or when you face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory and we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon cloud behind and life secure. Calm will be the better for the storms we endure. Our anchor of the soul is not just our, our subjective confidence, but the sure objective reality that God has promised. He is your anchor if you're in Christ. And you can be in Christ today with that. I'd love to talk to you if you want to know more. When he says in verse 19, he's the anchor of our soul, he has firmly anchored us to heaven in the covenant of God. How do you spell security? J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. He's our security. He is our covenant loyalty. Pray, Father. Help us to sing like we're covenant members. Because we are. Help us to sing like we're covenant people. Help us to sing because we have covenant promises upon us. We have a refuge love and uncommon love and costly love and peace-giving love. We don't know it that much yet. We've got to grow in it. Help us to grow in it. Help us to sing about it and pray and thank you and claim it and go after you. Thank you so much. And I pray that if there are people here this morning that... They are not there yet. You would sweetly and graciously and patiently draw them in. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Conviction.